0: Amen. Am I on? We're good? Well, I have to say, Sean couldn't pick a better song than that last song that goes perfectly with my sermon for tonight. So, it's definitely all about Christ. We have no boasting in ourselves, as we're going to see here tonight. Well, good evening. Um, So, as you guys may know, a few weeks ago I was asked to fill the pulpit for a preacher friend of ours that we met through the homeschooling association. That's why I wasn't in church a few weeks ago, and it was certainly an honor to do that. And as you know, we're in Exodus here at night, but because of Dom leaving, Lenny was going to be up preaching, but because uh, he has something, uh, a family gathering with his family to see off Dom, uh, the pastors asked me to do pretty much the same sermon. I kind of tweaked it just a little bit for this congregation, but that's what I'm going to be sharing with you guys tonight. So, <clears throat> whenever I'm asked to do a sermon, uh, like the Pulper, to fill a pulpit or do something like that, the hardest part, again, is always deciding on what you're going to preach, especially for just one sermon. You know, when we're here, we're in a series. If we're in Sunday school, we're like we either going through the confession, we're starting a new book, we're in Exodus at night, we're going to preach whatever is there at that moment, and it's kind of easy. So when I have to preach on something for one week... Oh, can be a little overwhelming. Where do, There's so many things in my head, I get so flushed as, Lord, what do you want me to do? So it's always good to preach on something that is somewhat close to home, maybe something that you're reading in your own personal de- devotions. Uh, a few weeks ago, around well, a month ago now, we had our family vacation uh, down the shore, and I'm blessed to have a family, not just, you know, my immediate family, but, you know, my cousin Nick, who you know, you guys know, who comes here whenever he's here visiting, that the, the, most of the family is saved, so it's a blessing. So a lot of times, you know, when we're hanging out, the, the men will discuss different things, the theology. Same thing with the men here at the church. And oftentimes, we, are, we, we end up talking about this topic of, which is really sanctification-based, and it seems like that there's a real a lot of confusion within sound Christian orthodoxy on the subject of sanctification. And when I mean sound orthodoxy, I mean guys that we like, good churches, but yet there seems to be a misunderstanding on this area of sanctification. So what we need to know is that sanctification is part of, of salvation. It's not something that's exclusive to it, a different thing. It's actually part of salvation. And because it is part of it, without it, no one will see the Lord. And we'll get to that later on towards the end for application. Therefore, if there's no sanctification, then guess what? There's no salvation because sanctification is part of salvation. So my title for this sermon is going to be, Because You Live Do this, okay? And sorry, my throat is a little bit off, so if I'm losing my voice, forgive me. Um, Because we live, do this. Now, if we look at this title, we can see that the antithesis or the opposite of this would be the contrary. It would sound a little something like this. Do this and live. So before I get into our passage for today, I want to go through what theologians call the order salutis. Sean brought it up a few times in Sunday school. It gets brought up oftentimes in Sunday school. And all that word is, it's a, it's a, I think that's a Latin term, okay? But all it is is called the logical order of our salvation, or maybe better put, the stages of salvation of salvation and if you were to google that you might have anywhere between like four and up to eleven and for, our, for, for tonight they're all saying the same things but sometimes some, they get a little bit more in detail so for tonight the first thing i want to go over is foreknowledge okay First is foreknowledge, meaning God's knowledge of all that he will do before anything was. And if we're talking about salvation, his foreknowledge in particular of those who would be saved. And this has nothing to do with God learning something because he's all knowing that he can see kind of in the future. Okay, It's more than that. God can't experience not knowing. Okay, So his foreknowledge has always been with him as he has always existed. Okay? And the second would be, and it builds right off it, it goes hand in hand, would be election, which has to do with God choosing those whom he will save. But all mankind are by nature children of Adam, and we have inherited Adam's sin. Therefore, something needs to happen in the sinner, right? So the third part of salvation, or the third stage, would be regeneration, or what we call The new birth, being born again. Unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then when that happens, the sinner is now converted, right? He then believes freely because his heart has been changed. He knows his sin is ever before him and that he has offended the holy righteous God who made him. And essentially at that moment, he has a similar cry of the tax collector. Remember, Jesus gave those two stories of the the Pharisee and his prayer to the tax collector. And the tax collector couldn't even look up to God, but he beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we know that his prayer was a just prayer. So he believes in the only hope, He repents and puts his faith and trust in the only one who can save him. And when that happens, he immediately is justified. So then we have justification. That's a legal term. We're standing before the judge is now good. And if that weren't enough, he then gave us the beautiful gift of adoption. That's another stage of salvation. We're no longer enslaved people, but sons and daughters. And then... There is sanctification and then glorification. Now, in one sense, all of salvation is sanctification. In other words, we have been marked from eternity past to be his children, right? Sanctification means set apart for holy use, right? Justification is essentially positional sanctification, right? Once we are justified, we are, we are secure. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Our standing before God is sealed, right? We are no more at enmity with Him. We, have been, we are in a good position that will never change. So justification is positional sanctification. We, t- we learned about that in Sunday, Sunday school. Then we have glorification. Glorification is essentially Perfect sanctification, right? In other words, now we are in our forever state, which is perfect. And at that moment, again, we look forward to giving him the perfect worship that he deserves. But in between that is what we call progressive sanctification. That is, by his power, we grow more and more conformed into his image. That is, we grow more holy in heart and conduct. And when we're talking about sanctification in the Bible, it's this aspect of Salvation of sanctification that he's talking about, this progressive sanctification. I like the way the Baptist Catechism puts it. He says this, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, Second 2 Thessalonians 2.13, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. Ephesians four twenty three and twenty four, and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Romans six four six and eight one. So and again, whenever we think of the doctrine of sanctification, it is this aspect of it that we are talking about. So this morning, this morning, I didn't eliminate that in my notes. This evening, right? I want to talk a little about this wonderful and important doctrine. So our text. For this evening is going to be found in the Epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, verse 1 to 12. So if you guys stand with me, I'm going to pray, and then I will read this text. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much that really you have done everything that is necessary for us to be right before you. You have done the whole work of salvation. Lord, now we are here as new creation, and we are to respond a certain way that is consistent with everything that you have done for us. So, Father, as I preach this sermon, Lord God, I'm always reminded that I have no ability in myself. I'm also reminded that everyone that's sitting before me, Lord God, has no ability to understand this in their own strength. But praise God for your Holy Spirit that is here forevermore with us, inside us. You are our helper, so we are relying on you to do everything, Lord God. And we absolutely have confidence. We trust in the perfect work of the Godhead, and we trust that your spirit will do his job. And we thank you in advance beforehand. So I thank you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I'm gonna read verses 1 to 12. Finally then, brethren, we request... Request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor Not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, as to the love of the brethren, You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, attend to your own business, and work with your own hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. You may be seated. So one of the most common things that Christians desire is what the will of God is for their lives. And this is indeed a good question to ask, is it not? We, we should want to know what God's will is for our lives. And in one sense, the answer is different for each Christian. And in another sense, the greater sense, and I would even say the more important sense, it is the same. So let's look at the first sense here. We know that not every believer has the same spiritual gifts. If God has not equipped us to do something, then it is not in His will for us to do it. And likewise, if He has equipped us, equipped us to do it, then we must or we are certainly out of God's will. A few verses here, James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. And then in Romans chapter 12 Verses three to eight, we read this: For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have members, for just we ha- as we have members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy in accordance in proportion to his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, He who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And I love these verses because they are very straightforward. First, if we look at this, we see that if one has a gift, he should operate in that gift within the ability that God has given him, the beginning part of that. And then secondly, if he has equipped us to do a certain thing, right, He who teaches, let him teach. He who exhorts in their exhortation. He who uh, who, um, serves in service, then serve, right? If this is what God has done, then simply we should do that. And then thirdly, he kind of changes the flow of what he's saying here. We should do it with excellence, right? He says, he who gives with liberality. In other words, do it with excellence. He who leads with diligence, Right? And then, fourthly, we should do it with the right attitude. He who shows, uh, shows mercy with cheerfulness. Your attitude should be right. Why? Because this is something that God has given you. It's a precious gift of God that He has equipped us who were not able to do it beforehand. Right? So, this is so important. So we see clearly from this passage in Romans that if God has so graciously equipped us with the ability in him to do his work, then we must do it, and we must do it with joy. So what we need to know is that God's will is clearly stated in Scripture. Sometimes, brothers and sisters are expecting the clouds to split open or we're waiting for some kind of mystical phenomenon to happen in order for us to know what God's will is for us. And he's not going to do that. He's not going to speak out of the clouds audibly or do something like that. He's already spoken, and he's spoken very clearly in Holy Scripture. I think of Psalm 37.4. It's not going to come up. I added this, but it says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I love that verse. It's one of my favorite verses. So God has spoken his will to us in the scriptures. If our delight is in all that makes him pleased, our sanctification, by the way, then he will give us the desires of our heart, whether it's going to Poland for a year, right? Like Dom or or Joey going to the Dominican Republic possibly for a certain time. Whatever the case may be, if we are obeying what he said in his word, right? We are delighting ourselves to make him pleased, then we can have peace of mind to know that we are going to do this or we are going to do that because we've done the most important part. So this is so important, okay, so important. So let's look at verse 1 in our text, and we're going to just go through this whole thing verse by verse. Verse 1, <clears throat> verse one says, Finally then, brethren, we, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as how... You ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. That's the first of that expression. We're going to see it another time in the end. And we learn from this verse that Paul, being the apostle that he was and having the divine authority that was given to him, instructed these believers on how they were to live as new creations in Christ Jesus, okay? He gave them the instructions, right? I think of 2 Corinthians 5:17, a popular verse, okay? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away; behold, new things have come. And this is an awesome and a very important verse, and it becomes even more awesome when you look at the original language. The verbs used for passed away and the coming of the new are indicatives. And what that tells us is that what is happening is actually happening, and the logical implication is that it will continue to happen. Why? Because a new birth has happened. There's been a powerful new transformation that has happened in you. So Paul taught these believers what the will of God is, and they were doing a pretty good job, as it says here in verse 1. But what does he say? Even though they were doing a pretty good job, he says that he wants them to excel still more. The Bible tells us in another area that we should be content in all things, right? But this contentment is in regards to our place in life. That is how he has gifted us, maybe, right? Or our financial state, or our physical state. In other words, where we find ourselves in this life, we are to be content wherever we are. But not when it comes to obeying our master with the good deeds that he has commanded us to walk in. Now, one might ask what these good deeds are, and it's not that difficult to answer. And if you're here, from everyone, that whoever's in this pulpit, we all have our little go-to Phrases or things, right? That, dear? So for us, it's not that difficult answer, and it's all in the greatest two commandments. So I'm going to say it again in Matthew 22, verse 36 to 40, because these are so important for us as Christians. What does it say? Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So this means that these two commandments sum up the whole moral law, which we know in the Ten Commandments. It's very unfortunate that many in Christendom are what we call antinomian. In other words, they're against the law, right? And I was talking with my cousin Nick, as we told you we talk, we always talk about these things, and we were just talking about this thing of easy believism. You've heard that term. I actually don't like it because I don't agree with it based on the definition that they give it and what we associate it with, but I actually believe it is easy because if God has chosen us, okay, it is very easy. We simply believe, and if God has done the work, we will. But we know what's a, what comes with that definition is actually something else. But this concept of easy believism is really better called antinomianism. And we're against that. Okay? Romans 6 tells us, shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? And what does he say? May it never be. Okay? God didn't save us to keep on sinning. And sin is directly associated with the law. The law of God, the Ten Commandments. Sin is breaking the Ten Commandments. Guess what? Now, under grace, sin is still breaking the Ten Commandments, right? So we are not against the law. The law is a perfect rule of God. It is the nature of God. So God didn't save us to keep on sinning, but rather to be like him. That's why he saved us. Now, are we going to be perfectly like Christ in this tent? Certainly not, right? But we should never stop striving to be under his power within us. So Paul is saying to these Thessalonians that you're doing good, brethren. You're doing a good job, but don't stop. Do even better. Now look what he says in verse 2 and the first part of verse 3. For he says, For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. You want to know what the will of God is? Right there is a huge part of it. Sanctification, that's the Greek word hagiosmos, which means your holiness. Sanctification and holiness, essentially, it's the same thing, okay? Being set apart. For those wanting to know what God's will is, please, let's just start with the basics, which happens to be the most important part of God's will. You know, in almost any sport or the arts or maybe even a trade or a craft, Or maybe a subject, right, in school, you will see that the best coaches or the best teachers always focus on what we call the fundamentals, right, the fundamentals, and likewise, the best participants in those areas are the best because they understand those fundamentals, right, if you're in basketball, dribbling, especially with your opposite hand, right, learn how to do that, and that's going to be so foundational in you being a good basketball player, Right, So they understand the fundamentals. And because they understand them, they operate in them. They don't move to the right or to the left. They stay consistent. They never leave these fundamentals of whatever it is. Well, the fundamentals of the faith, again, are summed up in the fact of our salvation. So let's just go back again real quick to the order Salutis for a moment. God had marked you before time even was. Right There was a process in space and time. We were by nature children of wrath. We were at one time alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, but at a certain moment in time and space, you were brought near by the blood of the Master. You were spiritually dead and were made alive forevermore by the Master. You then repented and believed in the only hope, the Master, Jesus Christ, We believe in his person, that he's fully God and fully man. We believe in his work, that he was the propitiation for our sins, being the spotless lamb of God who took on our sins. We believe we have been adopted by the Father. And we believe and uphold his word, knowing that it is our greatest authority. And if we uphold it, this means that we uphold all that it teaches us. We embrace all the teachings of this word. We're not just going to up and say, this is the word of God, it's great. But what is the word of God teaching? That's what we need to uphold. And what does the Lord say? Let's look at what he says here to the apostle Peter. Another great passage of scripture in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 to 16. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action so important that our minds are prepared. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in the spirit. Fix your hope completely on a grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all manner of your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, I can't express to you how much I love these verses. But can I also say that I can't express to you how convicting they are to me as well. I love them because it is the truth that comes from my God, from my Lord. And I am convicted because I know how much better I ought to be. Because I call him Lord, but my actions don't always show it. And my heart breaks Right, And not just for any merit, but because of all that he has done for me. More so than that, because of who he is. He is the almighty, powerful, glorious God who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man can see and live. Hold that thought in your minds for a moment because I'm going to get back to that. Let's look again at verse 3 and 4. Let's finish the other part of it. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. So I don't want us to get confused and think that sexual immorality is the only thing that has to do with our sanctification, because there's a lot more that has to do with it. But this is where we are, and we need to understand that it is certainly important. Sexual immorality destroys lives. It destroys marriages. It destroys families. It destroys nations. All we have to do is read our Bibles from Genesis to Revelation, and we will see this. The Greek world surrounding these believers in the immediate context was very promiscuous. You know, there's nothing new under the sun because that's exactly how it is now in our context. Casual and unnatural sex was the norm, and one could argue was even praised certainly is right now in our context. And though there are many sins to commit, this may be humanity's most destructive one and common one. The more unholy a nation is, <clears throat> you'll see that the more unguarded they are when it comes to this particular area. I really like what Newt Larson says concerning this. It's a rather long quote, but I think he, again, I think he just nails it. Very, a lot of stuff I've already said He says this concerning these two uh, two verses. Most people are eager to know God's will. They attend seminars and read books on how to find it. Behind the interest is a desire to have God make our choices for us. I am praying for God to show me his will about whether or not to take this job, some say. Others ask, pray that my son will know God's will about which college to attend. God's revealed will is very specific. God's revealed will, we know, is the stuff that he has declared to us in his word. We know there are secret things and those things belong to God. So uh, Larson says God's revealed will is very specific. There is no guesswork, no need for searching or seminars. There is only the choice of whether we obey when we know what God desires. One of the specifics of God's will is that his followers participate in the process of sanctification. Being set apart and dedicated to God. Since God is holy... His followers must also be holy. And this is reflected in a pure life, keeping oneself from sexual immorality. You know, I think of what John preached on uh, a few weeks ago. Are you afraid of the power of the gospel, right? What the gospel can actually do so that we can actually do the things that God wants us to do. And not keep saying, oh, here I go again, or here I go again. A lot of times is because we're afraid of the power of the gospel. We're not willing to fully commit ourselves to the power of God. And that's a shame. Listen to what he says concerning verse 4. First, Paul stated the Christian moral standard positively control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Paul instructed us to learn self control. Control does not come automatically, but involves work and discipline, as well as clear instruction in Christian ethics. Self-control is an evidence of God's spirit at work within us, but it requires our vigorous cooperation. In this context, body refers to one's own body, which is to be controlled and held in holiness as something set apart for God's use, end quote. So if God is telling us that we need to know the proper way to possess our bodies, and I believe that this means our minds as well, our whole being, right? Then it must also imply that it doesn't just come naturally. Or he wouldn't have to keep telling us these things, right? Now you might be saying, what do you mean, brother? We're a new creation. You just said it, Mike. Yes, we are but did we ever read Romans 7, right? No, I don't have time to expound on all of Romans 7, but that chapter is talking about the experience of a true, genuine believer, the experience of the Apostle Paul himself. Paul is talking about his battle with the flesh. He sins still, right? And at times more than he can bear. And as I've said before, I do believe he was probably the best Christian that ever lived. And that's not to elevate Paul. It's just a reality. Okay? He was a godly man when he was converted, yet he is sinning still. But praise God for his battle. Praise God for his battle. Because it is proof of him being a new creation in Christ Jesus. I would say if there's no battle, that's... I would be concerned. But if there's a battle, praise God for the battle. So if God tells us to be holy like him, again, it is because we can also be the contrary. And we should all know that very well, right? Now, I often say when I teach or preach, and it sounds very similar to my title, I say this almost every time I feel like because I always go back to it. And What do I say? Be who. You are. Be who you are, meaning be who you are in Christ. The are is the real you, like the Paul, who delights in the law of God according to the inward man, the new converted Paul, but has another war with his flesh. So there's a temporal reality while we are in this tent. That is, we have another nature that is encapsulated in our flesh. And this nature does not desire the things of God, nor will it ever. And until God calls us home, we must fight against it, brothers and sisters for the glory of the king. That's why we exist. So again, verse 4 said that we need to possess our own vessel in sanctification and honor. Then verse 5 says, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who they were, talking about unconverted like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but what? In sanctification. Again, Paul is just being logical here. He's being reasonable. These verses are simply saying that the unconverted are enslaved to their own sin. Therefore they possess their vessels in lustly and lustful passions like verse 5 says therefore they transgress and defraud each other but God gave us a different calling a high calling to be just like his righteous son perhaps Romans 6 really talks about this perfectly it's a long passage but I'm going to read it Romans 6 Verses 12 to 23, just listen carefully to this because, well, it's God's word, so he's going to say it perfectly. Talking to a church who was redeemed, who was converted, their fate is sealed, they're going to be in glory one day, right? Talking to a real, real child of the king who has been adopted by the father. So we need to look at it with that lens. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey it in its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, resulting in death, or of obedience, resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, past tense, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, What benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, brothers and sisters, he did not save us to be the same, but to be much different, much better. Verse 7 and 8 in Thessalonians. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So what is Paul talking about here? Were there believers that rejected this? Maybe. We know he always dealt with some kind of false teaching. We know that even believers can be carried away by every wind of doctrine that are true believers if they don't subject themselves to the word of God. But more importantly, I think what he's saying is that if any of us reject what he is saying, we are actually rejecting the God who gives the command. This is not the word of Paul. This is the word of Jesus, right? So by not obeying the call to holiness, as many would preach, ah, don't worry about that stuff. You're being a legalist. Don't worry about obedience to the law. We're not under law. We're under grace. There's a very popular teaching within the church that's like that. By not obeying the call to holiness, you're rejecting God's loving command, and that is not good. He has saved us to be holy to be like his son. Where we could not do it before, we have the ability in Christ Jesus through the the Spirit's power to do it now. Verse 9 and 10. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. Here's the second time now we see this phrase it is the Greek word parisiouo, and it means to abound or to superabound, right, to excel even more. So this is the second time, and we need to pay attention to it. So Paul commends them for their love of people, right? He's commending them. They're doing something good. This is the second table of the moral law. He acknowledged that, not, acknowledges that they weren't just doing it once, but that this was a consistent practice of them. That's a good thing, right? But then he urges them to excel even more. Well, why is this? Well, first of all, none of us are perfect, right? None of us are perfect, and we can all improve. Even when we're doing good things, we can always do it better, right? I can't think of, I mean, I, I've done many bad deeds. I know I've done good deeds, I'm not going to pat myself on the back. It's only by the work of God, but I know anything that I've done that's been good, I can do a much better job. I can get out of the way more, and just it's that's a that's sanctification, right? It's a work in progress. Secondly, our flesh is real, and no matter how mature one may be, if any of us lets our guard down, we will fall. If any of us from the biggest baby in this room to the most mature one, we will fall if we let our guard down. And thirdly, and most importantly, God is deserving of all of our effort and all of our rigor. He is deserving of all of our love, and that is not possible without all of our compliance and obedience to what he has told us in his word. Let's finish it up here, 11, 12 and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Now why is this here? I think many people uh, misinterpret these verses, especially the working with your hands part, thinking that all he's talking about is working with your hands. It's not what he's talking about. So in verse 10, Paul urges them to love even more than they have, right? Loving someone, let's just be practical here. I think these verses are very practical. Loving someone looks a certain way, does it not? It looks a certain way. It won't look like mooching off them. You know what a mooch is? A mooch means means to get things from another or to live off the generosity of others without providing any return payment or benefit. Love. Looks a certain way. Loving others means that we regard them. As a matter of fact, scripture tells us very clearly that we are to regard others as more important than ourselves. So these verses are talking about doing your part in society, your part within the body of Christ, working hard, right? If you're not working hard, guess what? You're out of God's will. Working hard. Bearing your own load. If you're not doing that, you're out of God's will. Working that you may eat. If you're not doing that, you're out of God's will. And maintaining a good testimony. All these things are important, right? So now, going back to my title, because you live, do this. I said that the antithesis to this is do this and live. And essentially, those were the conditions in the old covenant. To Israel, especially when it came down to the land. Remember that in uh, that I believe Israel was a type of the church, right? In their context, they had to do in order to live and be blessed in the land, and not doing or not obeying would end up being the contrary, right? They would get cursing, you would see what we would do. Read the Bible when we saw what happened, right? Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15 and 20. And let's not misinterpret this. I want to keep this within the lens of a certain context because these verses that I'm about to read in one sense still apply, but in another sense it doesn't. So Deuteronomy 30, verse 15 to 20. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. And that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice and by holding fast to him. For this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to give them. So we see here in Deuteronomy that this pertained to Israel was a works-based form of attaining life and life in the, same, in the sense of blessing and privilege within this land that was given to them. I don't want us to get confused think that salvation was by works for them and it's by grace for us. No, it's always been by grace through faith in the Redeemer. Okay, David was under the law and he knew that he was not saved by obeying it, yet he was called to obey and needed to obey. He knew that blessing would follow for obeying and the contrary for disobeying. So this life means life in the sense of blessing and privilege. Israel as a nation would thrive in the land that was given to them only if they obeyed. So their fate was do this and live. Those under the covenant of works are doomed because God demands what? Perfection. And none of us can do that. Think of how many religious systems are out there that go by the same principles. It is a works-based system. They're relying on their eternal life based on what they do. And that's sad because we already know that that's doomsday, essentially. So I have titled my message, Because You Live, Do This, for a Reason. Our works don't result in our life, but but rather we live because he who has life in and of himself has given us life. And on the contrary, the unrighteous works of Adam and Eve led to our unrighteousness, led to us being dead in our trespasses and sins, and there is no good work that we can do to undo the hard and wicked heart that we were born with. This is total depravity. Man can do no good For there is none righteous, not one. There is none who does does good. We know that so destructive was the fall that the first child born was a murderer. I've said this many times. We know that right before the flood, Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is man if God does not step in. So how can we do in order to live when unrighteousness can't do righteousness? So we must remember that we love him because he first loved us. We must remember that it was his work that made us alive. And now that we live, what is it that we ought to do? Or well, we should respond worthy of this great salvation. We should submit to God. That's the only acceptable thing. Think of what the great hymn says, trust and obey for there is no other way. Let's just think about submitting to God for a moment as I close this message out. How do we apply this after such straightforward teaching from the scripture? I believe it's very straightforward, this text that we read. So I'm going to submit three things. Number one, What is behind because you live in my title is the God who dwells in unapproachable light. We live because he has declared it, because he has made us alive. The very God that told Moses, no one can see me and live, but our life came at a cost, did it not? Though our salvation was free, It is only free for the recipients of it. In fact, it came with the most pricely cost, the spotless Lamb of God and King Jesus. So if this is what happened, now what? Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And it's verse 1 that I really want to focus on, but I always have to read verse 2 when you read verse 1. If you're paying attention, you'll notice that the logical flow in the passage in First Thessalonians. And this is really most of scripture, right? The New King James Rendering, you know I like better for this verse, it says your reasonable service rather than your spiritual worship. And for a reason, the Greek word is logical, so where we get to learn the word logical from, right? So a, our lives being a living sacrifice to this wonderful God who made us alive is the only reasonable thing, the only reasonable way to respond to what has been given to us. He saved us from his wrath. Think about that for a moment. How could we respond in any other way? Knowing that we live because of him, how could we respond in any other way? And yet unfortunately we sometimes do, don't we? And that's what hurts. Unfortunately, we sometimes do and maybe more than we can bear like Paul in Romans 7. Secondly, all the commands, all the exhortations, all the encouragements and warnings in Scripture are there for a reason, and they're given to believers. Right? They're given to believers. Scripture is for the believer. The Word of God cannot be understood or discerned by an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So if there are commands and warnings in Scripture, they are for God's people, and they are there to remind us of our dual-natured status, and that we can actually do the contrary, right? He's telling us not to do something because, like an infant, a baby child, you say no, what do they do? They do the opposite because we have to constantly be reminded. Again, Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That's the condition if you don't want to carry out the desire of the flesh. Galatians, just like 1 Corinthians, just like 1 Thessalonians and all the Bible, was written to the church. And though the church is redeemed and though we are new, we will not be victorious over the fleshly desires if we do not surrender to the Holy Spirit's power that is within us. And thirdly, I said this in the beginning, the latter part of Hebrews 12, 14 reminds us that without sanctification... No one will see the Lord. And I said that sanctification is part of salvation. Therefore, because we live, do this. Because we live, live for him. That is our only purpose, why he got us up this morning. That is the only reason why we have breath in our lungs. Let's not think that our salvation and our security is in what we do. No. We are already living. He's made us alive, never to die, ever again. Therefore, because we live, do this. Respond in love and obedience to him. Let's pray. Lord, I believe I'm preaching to the choir here. I'm with my brothers and sisters, Lord God. We've Heard these things time and time again. We, we know your truth. We know what you expect from us. Lord, but sometimes we let the circumstances of life, we allow the flesh to get the best of us. Lord, forgive us for that. Forgive us for not being afraid of the power of the gospel, as Brother John said. Lord, we are a new creation. That is the fact. Without faith, it is impossible to please you. Help us to believe those very truths that you have declared to us, concerning us, Lord God. Help us to believe in the power, the amazing power of the Spirit, the very Spirit that was hovering over the face of the waters in the beginning, the very Spirit who gave us new life. Help us to believe in the power that we are indeed new. Forgive us when we fall, but thank you for lifting us back up. Thank you for unconditional forgiveness. Thank you, Lord God, that our boast is not in anything that we do, save Christ and Christ alone. You are glorious. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thank you, Brother Mike. There were so many, as we, I sit here to think of a, a closing song, there's so many hot words that I can you know. hear. We could do trust and obey 700 times. We could do they will know we are Christians by our love. We can do find us faithful. But I'm going to do one that I love that requires a lot of audience participation, which I love. 431, shine, Jesus shine. So please stand with me. And if you can, make sure that you clap when we sing that part, Shine on Me. All righty. 431, Shine, Jesus, Shine. And we're going to sing all three verses, right? Lord, the light of your love is shining In the midst of the darkness shining Jesus, light of the world, shine upon us Set us free by the truth you now bring us Shine on me Shine on me Shine, Jesus, shine. Fill this land with the Father's glory. Blaze, Spirit, blaze. Set our hearts on fire. Flow, river, flow. Flood this land with the Father's glory. I don't even what this your word, Lord and let there be light. Oh, there it was. Lord, I come to your awesome presence from the shadows into your radiance. By the blood may I enter your brightness. Search me, try me, consume all my darkness. Shine on me. Shine on me. Shine, Jesus, shine. Fill this land with the Father's glory. Blaze, spirit, blaze. Set our hearts on fire. Flow, river, flow. Flood the nations with grace and mercy Send forth your word, Lord, and let there be light. As we gaze on your kingly brightness so our faces display your likeness ever changing from glory to glory mirrored here may our lives tell your story shine on me shine on me shine Jesus, shine. Fill this land with the Father's glory. Blaze, Spirit, blaze. Set our hearts on fire. Flow, river, flow. Flood the nations with grace and mercy. Send forth your word. Lord, and let there be light. I love that song. God be with you.